Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 77. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks as usual to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that you can tailor to your individual sweat losses and sweat sodium concentration because with the individual variance that exist in how much we each sweat and how much sodium we lose through that sweat, these needs can be vastly different from individual to individual. And Precision Hydration have made it easy for you to figure out what sort of sodium replacement strategy you should be looking at using. And this is especially important in hot and long races. You can simply click the tab free hydration plan on their website and go through 10 questions or so in kind of like a quiz format. And that will then give you a really good estimate for how much sodium you lose and should be replacing in your races. You can use the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your order. And thank you to Roka. Roka have, as I mentioned, launched a new wetsuit very recently, the Maverick MX, which is a maximum buoyancy wetsuit designed to increase buoyancy while minimizing drag. And uh, with Roka's patented arms up technology, uh, adding more buoyancy has become something that they can do without sacrificing flexibility, which in the past used to be a problem for wetsuit manufacturers, that as soon as you add buoyancy, you basically reduce flexibility because of the, the material question. But in the MX, Roka has a wetsuit that has almost the same flexibility as the flagship model, the Maverick X, but it's their most buoyant suit ever. And uh, it's also very, very affordable at 450 US dollars, euros or 400 British pounds. Check it out and check out all the other products that Roka has to offer on roka.com forward slash TTS, where you can get a 20% discount for your entire order, whether it's the Maverick MX or something else that you are looking at getting from Roka. So on to today's question, which is from Sari in Finland, who writes, Hi, Michael, I've been wondering what the best field tests for keeping record of my fitness gains are. I know I should go and do a lab test to find out my training zones, but it is expensive and I would like to have tests that I can repeat and uh, check in on my progress. What are your thoughts on uh, the following tests and what else is there to consider? For swimming, CSS test and 1000 meter tests. For cycling, uh, an FTP test, 20 minute FTP test or a 20 kilometer time trial. And for running a Cooper test, which is a 12-minute time trial, or 10 kilometers, uh, a 10-kilometer race, or 10-kilometer at race-like effort. Thanks, Sari. Okay, Sari, thank you for your question. Let's uh, tackle these one discipline at a time, starting with the swim. So the CSS test, for those that are not aware, is a 400-meter time trial and a 200-meter time trial separated by 10 to 15 minutes of uh, mostly recovery, some swimming to keep yourself warm and ready to go. But uh, that's uh, the, the, main, uh, the main gist of the test. And the idea there is that uh, based on the drop-off in pace that you see between what you can hold for 400 meters and what you can do for 200 meters, you can calculate your critical swim speed 
which is uh, the speed that you can swim at at uh, an estimate of a metabolic steady state and this intensity is what is called your critical swim speed or your css and uh, it's something that uh, is often used interchangeably with uh, the general term threshold uh, so that's essentially what it means there are slightly different definitions for critical speed or critical power and threshold but for the purposes of uh, just selecting field tests we don't need to go into that here so the css test i really do like for several reasons first it's a relatively benign test i would say and uh, i found that even for non-swimmers they don't have to psych themselves themselves up as much for a css test the way they would for a 1000 meter time trial for example or even compared to a 20 minute run or bike time trial this means that uh, the css test is less sensitive to day-to-day variations in motivation and pain tolerance than some of the longer tests can be where you really have to dig deep and push as hard as you can of course you need to do that in the css test as well but it is just somewhat easier to do that for shorter durations of the CSS test compared to a 1000 meter time trial. So this makes it a very good test from the perspective of repeatability and testing consistency and being able to measure progress very accurately. Another advantage of this test is that since it is a critical speed test, uh, it uh, aims to distinguish between your aerobic and anaerobic capacities. That is why we have those two different distances, the 400 and the 200, to see what your decay rate sort of in intensity is between these different distances. And that is an interesting and very beneficial aspect for us triathletes because we, of course, are training for a highly aerobic event. And to contrast the information that you can get from a CSS test with the 1000 meter time trial, if you just do one single time trial, whether it's 1000 meters or another distance, you sure, you get a decent view of your aerobic capacity as well, of course, because we know that most of the energy will be aerobic. But uh, you get a better idea if you do two different tests of different distances, like the CSS test, as long as you can really perform them as two all-out tests and you pace them both well, then that just gives you a slightly better picture of your aerobic and anaerobic strength, strengths and weaknesses profile compared to a single test. Just to give you an idea of this, for a relatively decent age group swimmer, they might be doing the 200 meter test with 25% contribution or 25 to 30% contribution from anaerobic energy stores and the rest from aerobic energy stores. And in the 400 meter test, they might be using 13 to 15% of anaerobic energy stores. So the anaerobic demands double in this case, roughly between the 200 and 400 meter time trials. Uh, so even though 200 meters and 400 meters doesn't sound like two very dissimilar distances, uh, the doubling of anaerobic energy contribution really means that you can get a good idea of whether this athlete, the athlete doing the test, is strong anaerobically or stronger aerobically. So that's a very big advantage, in my opinion. A disadvantage of the CSS test, however, is that depending on the athlete type, uh, it can tend to give too hard target paces if you use CSS, so critical swim speed that you can calculate from those two time trials, to assess your target paces. 
So let's say, for example, that you swim your 200 meter time trial at a pace of 130 per 100 meters, and your 400 meter time trial is is only marginally sl- slower. So it might be at a pace of 131 per 100 meters. So that would be a 604 400 and a, a three minute 200. That means that your CSS will probably be, I haven't, I should plug this into the calculator. I have not. So I may be wrong, but I think that you would get a CSS of something like 132, maybe 133 per 100 meters. So that is essentially almost the same as your 400 meter pace. And and your 400 meter pace is very close to your VO2 max pace because that's your maximum six minute, uh, six minute pace in this situation. Maybe your true VO2 max pace would be more like four minutes or five minutes. It doesn't really matter. The point is that CSS as a proxy for threshold can be incorrect and uh, CSS can be too hard to, to be used as a steady state intensity if you are somebody who has a very small drop off between the 200 and 400 meter paces. So CSS for this swimmer, again, it can become just way too hard. It's an easy way to end up doing too hard swim training across the board, really, whether we're talking about your easier intensities or your harder intensities, just because if you base your paces off of that CSS benchmark, which maybe you should not do, actually, but if you are, then that's uh, a pitfall that you should be avoiding. The an easy way to avoid this is to simply use RPE for swimming when you do swimming workouts. So if you do a VO2 max workout, you might do something like eight times 100 meters and you just do your best effort across the uh, across that set of intervals. Whereas if you do a threshold set, which might be 10 times 200 meters, well, then you should do something that is uh, a hard, solid effort for those 10 times 200 but uh, you should feel like you have something left in the tank at the end and you should feel in each 200 that you're in control and you don't have to go uh, as hard as what your uh, calculated CSS might indicate that you should if you would were to use CSS as that proxy for threshold. So uh, that is a disadvantage, but uh, you can get around it by, as I said, using more of a session goal approach uh, as I described. Then the 1000 meter time trial, uh, on the other hand, the advantage of that is that it's much more specific to triathlon, uh, especially the longer the distance, the more specific, of course, uh, because it's so much, so much more of a longer sustained effort than the 400 and 200 meters. And uh, in particular for non-swimmers, which is the majority of triathletes, there is a large chance that your form will significantly deteriorate over the course of 1,000 meters in a way that it just won't over 400 meters. And then the 1,000 meter test can account for that sort of deterioration in form in terms of assessing your race readiness. So maybe at the beginning of your training season, your the beginning of winter, if you that's when you start your base training, you will really notice significantly uh, that your form deteriorates at the back end of that 1,000 meter time trial test. And that is an indication that, well, you might have some fitness, you might have some good high-end capacities, but you're probably not ready to race at this fitness because you're just not conditioned to be able to keep producing that sort of output just muscularly. But then if you do the test again, just a couple of weeks or a few weeks before your race, and you notice that, well, you can actually hold it together for the entire test, that would be a great way to to actually confirm that the training that you've been doing 
has been working in terms of not just your pure metabolic powers, but also how you can hold your form together, your muscular endurance and and, uh, resilience to that sustained hard effort. So so that's an advantage of the test. It is uh, more specific to triathlon. Also for diesel engine type athletes, so the ones that have a very small drop-off between the 400 and 200 meter paces on the CSS test, the 1000 meter time trial, in my opinion, gives a better estimate for their threshold pace than CSS. So that could be an option. If you are that athlete that struggles to go much faster over 200 than you do on 400, then maybe the 1000 meter time trial is the test that you should give a go. On the flip side, if you, as we discussed a little bit, don't have the ability yet to hold your form properly together over 1,000 meters, that 1,000 meter test can underestimate your threshold pace and then many of your target paces may also be underestimated uh, across the board from low intensity to high intensity. So it might be for this swimmer, if you really struggle with this, it might be better to get your target paces from a CSS test. And then, again, simply structure your training so that you can build up and improve that muscular endurance over time and suffer from less of a breakdown in form in a longer test like the 1000 meter TT. Also, one more disadvantage to consider with the 1000 meter TT is that pacing becomes such a critical element and you almost have to know within two or at most three seconds per 100 meters what you can swim for the test in advance before you do the test. Otherwise, you run the risk of either overpacing the test or sandbagging it. So uh, those are some of the pros and cons of of each of the tests. I should say that generally, I do think that swim training can be largely RPE-based and session goal-based. So for example... We know that if we prescribe a session of 15 times 100 meters or 8 times 200 meters on a 20-second rest interval, that that session should be around threshold. So to me, really getting target paces is not the main concern when it comes to to tests for swimming. Uh, It's more about actually uh, tracking progress and seeing if we improved from the previous block of, of training. Uh, The key influencing factors, therefore, for me when selecting the test is I want to have a test where we can reliably measure progress. And I want to have a test where, if possible, we can get some insight into the athlete's physiology. And for this reason, I mostly choose the CSS test because, as I said, it is, I think, a bit easier to repeat that because it just is mentally a bit easier on the athlete and also maybe slightly less sensitive to pacing errors than the 1000 meter test and uh, also because of the aspect that you do two tests of different distances you can get an insight into how strong they are aerobically versus anaerobically but i should say the 1000 meter test is great for athletes in particular those that have a decent muscular endurance and a great pacing ability. So uh, these might be a bit more advanced athletes, and especially the advanced athletes training for long-distance races. This may be the best test because of the specificity aspect for those longer races. And what I personally do in some cases is that even with these advanced athletes, I use the CSS test earlier in the season 
But as we start to approach race season, that's when you might do the 1000 meter test because it will uh, also assess the muscular endurance and race readiness in a different way than just the 400 and 200 meter tests will. So that is an option that I'm considering, even though it's not a given that we'll do that. And one more thing to consider, and this goes for all tests, the ones in swimming, but also the ones in cycling and running, you need a really good warm-up before the tests, so at least 20 minutes, and it should include some intense efforts to get you ready to perform at a high level. So that's it for swimming. Then for biking, we have, you're asking about the FTP test versus 20 kilometer time trial. And these are very similar tests. The 20 kilometer is a bit longer, of course, and uh, probably done just a marginal fraction above threshold, whereas 20 minutes has a slightly bigger gap down to threshold. But if you are testing outdoors, so you can have a 20 kilometer uh, route that you, that is measured versus just going for 20 minutes, either one is fine. The important thing I would say is to try to control as many variables as you can. So controlling the course, controlling the weather conditions, trying to test in similar weather conditions if possible, uh, controlling traffic, so making sure you don't run into traffic lights and that sort of thing, or have them disrupt your test, just so that you, again, can verify that that your test is repeatable and uh, can be used reliably to measure your progress. So in this sense, the easiest way to control things is, of course, to test indoors on the trainer. But on the other hand, if you do a lot of your training outdoors, it makes more sense to test outdoors as well, because then you get uh, numbers that are specific to the way that you will be training. Also, there is the other aspect that testing outdoors is a lot more motivating, and therefore it can help you perform better in the test just from a motivation standpoint. And uh, I am personally a fan of doing tests out on the road for this reason, because it just seems to help me push the boundaries much more when, when you're out on the road compared to indoors on the trainer. And if you want me to recommend one of the two tests there, I would say go for the 20-minute test, as it's, uh, first of all, it's easier to benchmark your results for that test against uh, other people, if that interests you even just reading articles and using charts charts like training peaks uh, categorization chart for where you are in terms of watts per kg 20 minutes is one of the uh, one of the main bars there that you can check so so that's a a good way to benchmark yourself and where you stand generally speaking also most coaches and training plans and the training zone calculators have this as one of their methods for establishing training zones so it's more sort of built into the ecosystem if you will uh, so those would be the a couple of reasons that i would recommend the 20 minutes above the 20 kilometer tt but again they are very similar tests at the end of the day so you could go for either one of them I should mention that there is another option that exists that many listeners may be familiar with, which is uh, doing a ramp test like the one offered by Swift or by Trainer Road. And the pros of that test is that it makes pacing, it takes pacing out of the equation basically, because it just tells you how hard to go and you're ramped up in regular intervals and, and go as hard as you can until you can't go any longer. Uh, so, so that is a really great advantage that it's not subject to improper pacing and sensitive to that. The cons of the ramp test is, from my experience, both trying it myself and trying it on several of my athletes. 
I'm not convinced that it gives you accurate training zones and targets. I do trust the 20-minute test much more in this regard. I think it uh, gives a better picture of where you are, and uh, probably because the RAM test might... Uh, it might vary too much depending on how strong you are anaerobically, whereas the 20-minute test might be a more give a more stable output and be more based on your aerobic capacity. That being said, you also have the option here for cycling to do a critical power test, as mentioned with the swim and the CSS test, to get uh, an idea of what your aerobic and anaerobic capacities are like. So this might be doing a short duration test and a long duration test it could be a four minute test and a 20 minute test which is for example what the inside testing protocol uses it could be something else it could be a three minute test and a and a 15 minute test uh, they both work uh, and some other options there are some some boundary conditions there but but there are various combinations that you could use and that has the same benefits that we talked about for swimming that you can get a good idea of your physiology that you don't get from a just a single uh, one-off test some other pros and cons that i should mention as well is that i kind of alluded to it already but doing a 20 minute or 20 kilometer time trial that requires good pacing like a swimming 1000 meter time trial as we discussed there and also these longer tests are mentally quite challenging, for example, compared to a CSS test for swimming or compared to the ramp test for cycling. That is another advantage of the ramp test that it, it can be easier mentally for you to get through that. And consider with any of these tests, again, you need a good warm-up. Also, test in the position, so aero bars or sitting up, and with the equipment that you train the most. So if you have different power meters, for example, definitely test with the power meter that you will be using mostly. Another consideration is, and this is something that I might not have said two years ago, but I think it might be better actually when pacing something like a 20-minute test to go slightly too hard at the start rather than going too easy. Uh, this is not uh, this is not go way too hard, but slightly too hard. I think it's better than going slightly too easy, because I think that even if you if you start slightly too easy, you still won't be able to pick it, pick it up at the end. It will get so hard. But if you start slightly too hard, your body will eventually self regulate down to where you should be basically but your average power will be a little bit higher that's my experience and uh, i've uh, gotten to see this from analyzing a lot of inside tests where the 20 minute time trial should be overpaced so starting really really hard and i've actually noticed that actually the average powers for 20 minutes end up being slightly higher than they would be for a 20 minute evenly paced time trial and i verified that with with a few athletes uh, so, so that's uh, something that uh, I wanted to mention to consider the pacing and not sandbagging it because then, yeah, you might not reach your potential. And the final consideration here is that remember that it's not all about your 20 minute power or your FTP when you're tracking progress with these tests. If you're training for a long race, like a, an Olympic distance race, even or a half or full distance race, which is non drafting, so a fairly steady output then you may have improved in other areas rather than your 20-minute power or FTP. Like you might be using more of your aerobic metabolism and producing less lactate, using more fat. So in the grand scheme of things, your performance readiness for your race could be very much improved, even though you don't see any difference in your 20-minute power in, in that time trial. So keep that in mind as well, that uh, it's not... Uh, this test result is not the be-all end-all. It's not all there is to how ready you are to perform on race day. 
Now, finally, the run. So a Cooper test, as I mentioned, is a 12-minute time trial, probably named after a guy called Cooper, I would imagine. And the other option you ask about is a 10-kilometer race or 10 kilometers at a race-like effort. So depending on your speed, that would essentially be a 30 to 60-minute time trial. And again, as for cycling, these different versions are pretty much the same with the 12 minute they are all steady single test efforts the 12 minute time trial of course being at a higher intensity compared to a 10 kilometer race but uh, but still they are all steady so so they are similar i would say in this case that the 12 minute time trial is better in my opinion as it's more repeatable it can be controlled better uh, not least because you can have a it's easier to have a course for 12 minutes you might be running it on the track actually in which case you could also do 10 kilometers on the track if that's your preference but maybe not my recommendation uh, so uh, so that's but and if you're running a 10 kilometer race as uh, as your benchmark testing i like that i do like giving five kilometer races or 10 kilometer races uh, and using them as benchmark sets but they are not repeatable unless you run the exact same race course. So something like the parkrun phenomenon is brilliant for this when you can go to the same five-kilometer race. Five kilometers also, in my opinion, being a more appropriate distance to do repeated testing than 10 kilometers for sure. So five-kilometer parkruns, I would say, is a fantastic option to to do tests. But when it comes to testing i don't prescribe 12 minute tests uh, time trials nor 10 kilometer my preference is actually just like the bike it's a 20 minute tt or a five kilometer park run which can be repeated so uh, so that's my preference but again this all is really quite similar because it, it all comes down to but all of these options are single bouts of time trial at some some specific some specific duration which will lead to a higher or lower relative intensity but it should still always be an an all-out intensity that being said you do just like in cycling or swimming have the option of doing a critical power test with two different durations and that the advantage again is to get a better idea of your anaerobic and aerobic capacities so for example running power meter manufacturer factor stride they have taken the 3-9 test as their standard option for testing, which is a 3-minute time trial followed by a 9-minute time trial after 30 minutes of recovery. And having done that test myself a couple of times, I can attest to the fact that you really need those 30 minutes before you feel ready for the 9 minutes because 3 minutes all out is absolutely brutal. Uh, anyway, uh, that is a good option for sure. And uh, Or you could use, just as I mentioned for cycling, some different durations. It might be better uh, to be honest, to do something like 3 minutes and 12 minutes or 3 minutes and 15 minutes uh, because 9 minutes might still be a bit skewed towards the anaerobic side. With any of these critical power tests, by the way, that you might do, whether it's for cycling or running, you can use many one of the many critical power calculators out there on the internet to get your critical power estimate. And I'll link to one for cycling and one for running and one for swimming uh, in, uh, so for CSS for swimming in the show notes or sorry, the episode description. So you can check those out. But uh, yeah, those are the options that you have. You have, uh, in addition to the ones you mentioned, a 20 minute test or a 5k park run and also critical power tests. Just like before, a longer single duration test, like a 20 minute test or a 30 minute test or a 10k, 
they are a bit more sensitive to pacing errors than a shorter test so that's one thing to keep in mind if you're good pacing then definitely a 20 minute test is in my opinion brilliant if you're not so good then maybe a shorter duration like 12 minutes might be better also the longer tests are more mentally challenging so that would be a reason that i could see to use a cooper test because it's still something that gives you a good idea of what sort of like steady high intensity you can produce over a given duration but it's shorter so might be easier mentally to do 12 minutes as a solo tt compared to a 20 minute test and some things to consider again test in repeatable conditions a track or a flat road is what i would recommend remember to do a good warm-up with some intense efforts in that warm-up and just as for cycling, it's not all about your 20-minute pace or your functional threshold pace. If you are training for those longer races, you might have improved some other areas that maybe are not seen in these in these higher-intensity tests, but that doesn't mean that you did not improve. Finally, some general things to consider when it comes to testing. When choosing between different field tests, there isn't really a right or wrong test to do. Choose one that works for you in each discipline and try to stick to that mostly so that you can make it repeatable. Control as many of the variables as you can to make sure that that progress measurement is as valid as possible. Testing is never the be-all end-all and you should not be a slave to the numbers you get from testing, whether it's your threshold power or pace or your training zones. RPE is always important in any session and great athletes know how to use RPE both when they need to go easier than a test might say they should and when they should go harder than a test might say they should. Also, I don't think there's any need to over-test. Remember that training is testing, so something just as effective as doing a lot of formal testing would be to maybe have just a key session in each discipline that you repeat frequently and your performance in that session might be seen as validation of progress or lack of progress but hopefully not because if you test too much then that's uh, first of all i think it's a good recipe for becoming a slave to the numbers i don't i simply don't think there's a need to be that granular at all times uh, secondly, you may end up second-guessing your training too much too often and not staying the course long enough and get consistency long enough to actually see the improvements you're looking for if you're constantly changing because you might not have seen the improvements you were hoping for, but maybe you tested after, retested after four weeks and that might not have been enough of a time window to get those improvements you would have gotten if you, had, you would have just stayed the course for four more weeks doing the same sort of thing week in, week out. And third, you may be draining your mental bank of energy. And the worst case scenario is that you would not have the ability to then go to the well when it really matters on race day because you have done too much testing that mentally drains you. And finally, don't think that you necessarily even have to test at all times in all disciplines through the year. For the athletes that I coach, how often we test varies a lot based on the individual. Very rarely does it make sense in my opinion to retest any sooner than after six weeks more commonly we would probably retest after eight to ten weeks or so and with some athletes we don't need to test at all at least not in all disciplines and i tend to find that the more advanced the athlete the less we need to 
test because they know their body so well. So we can micro adjust along the way rather than do formal testing very often. We do incorporate key sessions that can be repeated so we can verify if they feel stronger in the workout, perform better, etc. So we're definitely still holding ourselves accountable to whether there is improvement or not, but we might not have to do formal testing. Run testing in particular is the discipline where I tend to stay away from that with advanced athletes, at least when it comes to doing solo time trials. I am definitely more for entering races like a 5k or a 10k race and then using that race as an opportunity to get a benchmark and perhaps tweak some workout targets and training zones a bit based on that. But uh, solo run time trial tests for more advanced athletes is something that uh, I don't really give very often if I mean I do I do give that but not very often. And generally in the competitive season depending on the athlete's race schedule we might not test at all. And I would actually say that ideally we do not test at all because it's another maximum effort that I want to avoid at that time of season if possible and save those max efforts for races. So what we do there is to try to rely more on benchmark sessions and and the athlete's subjective feedback on how the target intensities feel in this phase of training to make any tweaks to workout targets and training zones. So that's it. Thank you, Sari, for your question, and I hope this helps. I'll link in the episode description to the critical power calculators, as mentioned. Keep sending in questions, everybody, for the Q&A. You can do so on the contact page on scientifictriathlon.com or just directly to my email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. And speaking of the contact page, the website, as I mentioned, is newly updated and has tons of information about the products and services we offer. And of course, we also have the show notes and the Q&A episodes there so you can find the, the content produced. Uh, if you're interested in coaching or training plans or the like, definitely go and have a look. And again, the URL is scientifictriathlon.com. Tune in on Monday to hear coach Bobby McGee, who is one of the most well-renowned triathlon running coaches in the world. This was a running, uh, a live interview, sorry, that I did in the Algarve, uh, right at the same time that uh, I interviewed Jono Hall that you heard on Monday. And if you haven't heard Jono's interview yet, definitely go back and listen to that because that's one of my favorite interviews that i've done so far i think big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com get a free hydration plan for your next race and use the promo code that triathlon show 15 to get 15 percent off your order and thank you to roca you can find them on roca.com forward slash TTS, which is also where you can get a 20% discount code that you can apply to any of their products, including wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.